Hey everyone, and welcome back to the show. I hope everyone had a great 4th of July yesterday. And to those of you who celebrated at the 99th Maverick Club Rodeo in Cimarron, I'm jealous, but I'm planning to be there next summer in person for the 100th anniversary. And I can't complain too much though, because I am currently sitting lakeside in Minnesota on vacation. So cheers to summertime and relaxation. And speaking of July traditions, such as the rodeo and Philmont Christmas, Lori idowski Repovich joins the show today to share her Philmont story, which has accidental and fateful origins. Lori first came to Philmont to visit a boyfriend, and she ended up staying the rest of the summer to work. With no intention to return the next year, she suddenly got the itch and found herself craving another westward adventure. Her first official summer on staff, she was a PTC group leader. She recalls PTC being a great place for a non-scouter to start her Philmont career. She also remembers her tight-knit group of girlfriends who spent days off in the backcountry together, learning the ins and outs of backpacking. As a PC at Bobien, she found herself across the meadow each morning, helping the Wranglers prepare for trail rides. She soon graduated from currying to saddling and became an honorary Wranglers assistant. The next summer, she returned as a Wrangler and eventually became the fourth female horseman on South Cavalcade. From shoeing and topping off to horse drives and rodeo dances, Lori found herself amongst her own, a ranch department family rooted in hard work, respect, and education. As South Cav horsemen in 1997 and 1998, Lori thrived as a leader and embraced the opportunity to build relationships with backcountry staff camps. Lori met her husband at Philmont, and she says, quote, There's just something about a guy in interps. Today, Lori and her family remain active in scouting and Philmont. Removed from all other distractions, Philmont gave Lori the time and space to think about who she wanted to be as she went forward into life. The hard work she encountered as a wrangler put into context other challenges in life. That, with some grit and trusted friends, one could make it through hardships and grow from them too. As always, thanks so much for listening. Let's hike on. you guys. First of all, I hope everyone had a great 4th of July. And today I have a special guest. Um, let's see, Lori, if I can get this right. Lori idowski Repovich. So she's here with us today to chat more about the Philmont Ranch Department and her experience. So welcome to the show, Lori. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm super good. I'm, I'm up at the lake. I'm up north. I'm living the vacation life and being able to throw interviews in during vacation is actually surprisingly very rewarding. So I'm glad to be here with you today. I just got back from my version of up north, which is northern Michigan, uh, where nice. we were up celebrating my busha, which is a Polish grandma's 100th birthday. Awesome. Was it awesome? <laughs> it was It was awesome. It was amazing. It was, uh, there's uh, 88 people in our family that, that come from my, my Bush and Jaja, the Phil and Pauline Idelsky family. And, and almost all of my cousins were there. So it was, it was basically a family reunion. It was so much fun. 
Yeah, super glad you got to do that. That's awesome. So you worked at Philmont in the 90s from 1993 to 1998. But what was your first introduction to Philmont? How did you first hear about it? So my origin story is kind of crazy. I, I went out in 1993 after I graduated from high school to visit a boyfriend uh, who was working on the ranch there and was an Eagle Scout and loved all things Philmont. And uh, I don't know still to this day how my parents um, let me go out because they were pretty um, strict about some of that stuff. But I think they thought Boy Scout camp, that should be fine. Um, and so I went out in 93 to visit. And while I was there, a staff member had to go home and get his tonsils out. And they said, would you like to stay for the rest of the summer? And thus began the rest of my Philmont career. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. That's really funny. I like yes. that. I don't think I've had that origin story. Yeah, an accidental Philmont staffer. Yeah, it was. And you know what? I honestly, I had such an awesome summer. I was in East Tent City assistant manager, which is a fancy way of saying I cleaned a lot of bathrooms and folded a lot of towels, um, did a few cracker barrels. And I worked, actually, my first manager was Allie Wick. So yeah. great Philmont introduction. And it must have made an impression because you came back then in 1994 uh, at PTC again. Yeah. So I, I really had no intention to return. I mean, I thought it was a really fun way to spend the summer uh, and I was going to go on with my life. And um, probably midway through my freshman year in college, I just started getting this itch. Like I just needed to get out of there. I just, I'd never been out West before I'd gone to Philmont. And so it was a new experience to see the mountains and see the beauty, but I didn't really get to do backcountry that year because it was, I came right before the 4th of July. So I was there for a, a good chunk of the summer, but I didn't have any gear. I um, was that person who all of the old timers raved and ranted about because I was borrowing uh, a class A that had an Eagle knot on it. And Oh my gosh, I didn't understand why people were so mad at me sometimes. Um, and so I, I didn't intend to go back. I got this itch probably November, December of my freshman year in college. And Forrest McVicker was the, the director then. He was awesome. And he'd said, do you want to come back? I said, nah, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, and so when I got this inkling, like, yeah, I think I do want to go back. I, I sent him and Anne a nice Christmas card and said, really looking forward to seeing you this summer um, at PTC. Um, have a great new year. And I got a contract two weeks later. So that that was uh, that next year I... Um, I went back on my own. I didn't know anyone except for some of the folks that I'd, I'd worked with in, in 93. Um, but when you're out there with someone um, in that situation where I was kind of, I didn't have a tent mate. I lived in a tent by myself because I came midsummer, So I didn't have that connection. Um, and when you're coupled like that, right from the start, you don't necessarily, I mean, Allie and I hung out um, and their friend group adopted me. But um, 94 was really my first year where I went out on solo, I guess I would say. And where are you from originally? I grew up in, in mid-Michigan, a small town called Charlotte. Looks a lot like Charlotte, but pronounced Charlotte. <laughs> okay, yeah, Charlotte, Michigan. So did you drive out by yourself in 1994? Or did you fly or take the train? <laughs> uh, no. Um, 93, I had problems getting out there. It was the year of the floods and, and all through the Midwest. And so I was scheduled to go out on Amtrak in 93. And at the very last minute, I called to check my tickets because I'd heard a lot of the flooding issues. And they said, great, we're looking forward to seeing you on Amtrak in Kansas City. And I was like, well, how do I get to Kansas City? Oh, we don't know. I was like, what do you mean you don't know? So I ended up having to fly out in uh, 93. And I thought, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. It didn't work out for me to do the train that year. I took Greyhound from Michigan to Raton, which I would not advise to anyone <laughs> to take unless you would like to see every back alley between Charlotte, Michigan and Raton, New Mexico, which which I did. 
Wow. Yeah, that was an adventure. How old were you in 94? I would have been 19. Um, so back in the calling card era, couldn't get my calling card to work. So my parents put me on a Greyhound bus and didn't hear from me for probably two or three days. I was that staff member who helps everyone else get reminded to call home when they announced at the beginning of the staff session for training, Lori Idelsky, please call home. Your parents want to know if you made it here alive. <laughs> so um, I, I kept getting this weird issue with my calling card. I kept saying, we cannot make an international call. And so I, I just, I, I, it's fine. I'll just let it go. And of course, not being a parent, I can understand why my parents were maybe a little bit stressed that they put me on a Greyhound and never heard from me again. So I, I, you definitely did have a westward adventure then. You you had that itch and, and it was an adventure from the start. So PTC family program in 1994, were you, what were you doing that that year for PTC? I was an assistant group leader. And so I think a lot of people probably are familiar with the program, but adult leaders come out to do training. And while they're there, their families get to basically have summer camp or day camp, really. And so I was an assistant group leader, mostly for, at the time, it was the Chicas. They were eight-year-old girls. And so we did, you know, nature trail and handicraft lodge and day hikes out to Window Rock and Lover's Leap. And it was it was such a great place to start. I know some people are all about the backcountry. And for me, PTC was the perfect place to start, not having a, a really a connection to scouting before I came to Philmont. Um, it was a, a set group of people. I made a really, really great group of core friends that I'm still friends with today. Uh, I had a tent mate. I lived in Tent City. Um, we just had a lot of, of fun that summer. It was it was such a great time. Um, I had a group of women, um, Cricket Lundstein and Jolene Clark and Trisha Daly, who are all have different names now, and Panita Hansball. And we kind of, Jen Temple, we kind of formed like this four or five woman backpacking group when we'd have days off. And it was a safe place for me to learn a lot of those things without being overly intimidated because so many of us were kind of learning as we went. And so it was it was a safe place to fail, as I would say to my to my interns now, um, find a place, a, a safe place to fail. And uh, it really was. We'd go out on adventures to places we could get to. And we didn't go really deep into the backcountry because we didn't have a lot of days off in a row. Um, but we'd go to Crater Lake or Uraka. And it was so much fun. I was I was going to ask you, I was going to say, you know, what did you do on your days off to do get into the backcountry? So it sounds like you made that effort, but you also had the people to go with and you didn't have to go alone or feel too you know, drinking from a fire hose. So that was that summer in 1994. Was there anyone else from your PTC years, like a mentor or a, a leader or anyone else or a tradition or anything you want to recall about the PTC years before we kind of move on to the rest of your resume here? Yeah, I had the good fortune that my first year, uh, all of the services roll up, rolled up at that time to Rachel Rickliffs. And so she, because I came in summer and she knew Forrest and they were, you know, kind of, um, gently welcoming me into the fold. And so she kind of looked out for me while I was there. Um, and I mean, still to this day, we exchange Christmas cards and I, and we check in with each other um, every year. Um, but she, she was someone who I, I always went back to visit after that. And ironically down the road, you know, ended up working for Bob's side of the ranch. Um, but at the beginning, it definitely was someone who uh, I could go to if I had a question or if I needed to know something that I didn't know. Rachel was always one of those people who kind of helped me out with that stuff. And you did make it into the backcountry then in 1995, returned on staff as a PC at Bobien, which is a really special camp for me. That's where my dad worked, and that's where I worked my first summer. So you made a transition from PTC to backcountry, and what was that world like for you? Oh, magic. 
I mean, you know, because Vobian, I'm a South Country girl. I spent all of my years there connected yes. most of the time to the South Country, um, which is ironic because my husband is completely North Country um, for the most part. And so I, I just loved it. I, I thought it was the most beautiful place on the ranch. Um, you had great program. It was a large family or a large staff family. And we had a, a full staff there, plus the Wranglers, plus we had a cons crew that was working um, at that time. And so we had a really big group of people. Cavalcades came through. Um, it was just a really amazing place to start. I worked for Laurie Cro- L- Lori Cochran, um, and she was a fantastic camp director. Um, Trigger, who was actually David Musolf, was our assistant camp director, and they balanced each other really well. He was a f- kind of a fun and um, she was fun too, but I mean, like he was kind of the the silly com- comic relief at some times. He definitely had the ability and the the um, the skills to be the leader he needed to be when he needed to be. But he he liked to you know have some laughs and and Lori was um, just an amazing person. Um, and uh, it was it was a great staff to start on. I worked with um, Travis Powell and Matt Todd, and it was just a, a really fun place to start. I, I joke now that I would have never been able to get hired at Bobian now. Because our campfire had one person who sang. That was it. She was a vocal arts major um, in Missouri. And there wasn't a single musical instrument person on our team. We read a lot of cowboy poetry. We told a lot of stories. Stacy Green was our horseman that year. And he played guitar and sang and, and wrote songs. And he would come to our campfire. We would beg him to come to campfire sometimes so that we could have music. Um, but it was definitely a variety show kind of campfire at that time. Another thing the folks from the 90s have said is just how different like the music scene was back then to today where there wasn't a ton of, you know, forethought or pre-focus on the music, I think, when they were doing the hiring. Um, And now it's it's, uh, definitely taken into consideration. But I'm always a huge fan of cowboy poetry and storytelling. I think those are really big parts of of the whole show, too. Uh, So, okay, when I was a PC at Bobian the Wranglers would occasionally invite us to come over in the morning and help, you know, jingle the ponies and saddle and whatever, you know, the few of us PCs that wanted to, we would, we would do that with them. What was your relationship with the Wranglers that year? Did you, did you go across the meadow very often and help out? So ironically, uh, Stacey Green was our horseman um, that year. And he came up uh, when we were doing the introductions, he made some comment like, if you guys want to ride horses this year, you better come over and, and do some work with us and get to know our staff. And um, we're not just here. You know, he was, he's kind of, I think I was intimidated by Stacy. Was I ever not? No, I'm just kidding. Um, he, he was, <laughs> he, he just knew his stuff and he was, he was, uh, didn't say a lot of words. There were a lot of people in the horse department that are um, not so spivey-ish as far as like, they, they don't say a lot of words. When they say them, you better be listening because they're probably relevant and, and important. Um, whereas Spivey and I may be a bit more extroverted um, and, and <laughs> definitely some of both of those. But Stacy definitely fell into the category of, you know, when he was new to your group or he wasn't necessarily um, throwing out words that weren't needed to say. Um, and so he I took that to heart. And I ironically I have an interesting story about about my horse experience, because until I came to Philmont, I had maybe ridden a horse once. Um, so when you put that together with the fact that that I moved forward into the horse department, it makes it even more special that Philmont gave me things that I could have never gotten in my life anywhere else. And so I started going over every morning 
Um, at the beginning, I was allowed to curry. I could brush the horses for them. And then after I graduated, they, they kept like, they worked me through a training program. I literally went every single morning that I wasn't on days off except for one because I was sick. And literally that morning when they walked in, <laughs> Stacy looked at me and said, morning, how was your breakfast? And like, it was like, they were just so used to me being there that um, it was a notable instance that I had missed that one morning. So I, uh, I graduated to saddles and feed bags. Um, I did lose, I do have a, a nice keepsake on my arm from not being fast enough for one of our younger horses for the feed bag. And he tried to grab the feed bag and instead grabbed a chunk of my arm. Uh, so <laughs> still remember to this day that that was phantom. Um, but yeah, he, um, he, I really learned a lot from the Wranglers. Uh, Shelly Keefe, who would be Shelly Keefe Phillips now, kind of took me under her wing that first time. Um, she was less intimidating to me than some of the others. And so I would ask her a lot of questions. And uh, a lot of times I would literally, they would assign me to a Wrangler that morning and I would like be their person. I'd go and brush their horses and then I'd saddle and then they'd put on the headstalls and the, the um, bridles, you know. And so as I got through graduating to each of those things, um, I kind of became like the extra free labor. <laughs> After I became a Wrangler, I realized how awesome that was for them. Because I would, like, after they went out on the ride, I'd scoop the corrals and refill the, fill back, refi refill the feed bags. Um, sometimes I'd get up early and go out and jingle the horses for them. I mean, like, I I just fell in love. I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Did you get to ride at all? Did they let you ride? So, super funny story. I never asked. I, I was, I was like, too too nervous to ask. So, I, I, I just kept doing the work thinking that one day it's just going to be my turn to ride. And finally, one day, Stacey goes do you ever want to go on a ride? I'm like, oh yes, I would really like to go on a ride. And this is like two thirds of the way through the summer at this point. <laughs> and he goes, well, you can go on a ride, go on an afternoon ride tomorrow. I'm like, okay. So I went out on the ride and I, I rode in the back and he was riding. You always have on the rides, you have three Wranglers that go out. One rides lead the front, one rides drag in the back. And then you have what's called a swing and they just ride back and forth and make sure everyone's good. Um, he was riding swing that day. And as we're riding next to each other, we probably spoke the most words we'd ever spoken to each other by ourselves. <laughs> and he said, so you thinking about being a Wrangler next year? And I probably had a deer in headlights look like me. Like it literally never occurred to me that that was a possibility. And he said, I said, I, I mean, do you think I could? He's like, well, I'd put in a good word for you with Ben. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, holy cow. Like it was such a revelation of a moment for me because he opened up a, an area that it just you know, I was so inexperienced and I, everything I knew I'd learned, which I think about now with what, what I do with um, the real world and how we bring in different co-op students and we train them in our ways. And then they're already trained when you get them after college um, to do things the way you want them. So for me, you know, a lot of people come in and they've grown up on ranches or, and, and, um, or uh, different farms or operations where they've been around livestock. And they have a way that they want to do it. And they get real, sometimes they get a little sideways about the way that Philmont does it. And everyone at Philmont is supposed to do it the same way. Um, but for me, that was the only way I knew. So I was like, that'd be great. I would really appreciate that. So I went home that summer and, and put my application in for Wrangler. And lo and behold, got an application and probably literally screamed out loud when it came in the mail. And um, then thought, oh my gosh, I need to learn how to ride a horse. <laughs> because I've really only been on trail rides. And I think any Wrangler and horseman who was there in 96, my first year as a Wrangler, will attest that it was a work in progress. Like I, I, I had some friends on the road from us at my, at my parents' house 
in Michigan that had horses. And I called down, I'd babysat for their kids when I was growing up. And I said, it was uh, Dan and Mary Ellen Brocklehurst. I said, would, would you be willing to, to give me some pointers on horseback? And so I'd go down, you know, a couple times a week with them when I was in between school stuff. And they taught me all the basics of riding and the all important posting, um, which isn't very cool as a cowboy. But sometimes you have some horses at Philmont where you need to have that skill because um, they're not very smooth. And and so I, I really learned trial by fire um, that first couple of weeks on um, staff at Philmont as a Wrangler in 96. We came out and we come out really early, um, usually the third week in May. Um, and one of the things you do is topping off. And and that what that is, is once all the horses are in and they've all been shod, then you do topping off. They, they put all the horses in one corral, all the Wranglers grab a, um, a halter, you get a horse, you saddle it, you go into the arena, two laps at a walk, two at a trot, two at a lope, put them in the next corral, go back to the first one, grab another horse, do it again. And we do that for eight or 10 hours a day. Um, and so you have a lot of chance to practice all of the things that I'd been learning. Um, but I didn't look very, uh, very skilled that first couple of months um, at Philmont for sure. The beginning of the summer obviously looks different for every department, but I think specifically the range department. You know, you guys show up early and you have this incredible work to do that's very, you know, labor intensive and frankly, at some points, you know, dangerous and in um, it's you build skills just incredibly fast, like you said, by fire, trial by fire. And um, so I was going to ask you that. I was going to say, you know, what is what does the beginning of an, an end of the summer look like for a Wranglers? And you guys, I, I believe, also do a lot of the the shoeing. And yeah, those first few weeks for Wranglers are just so intense. I, I mean, I, a, everybody is walking a little bit crazy those first couple of weeks because even the people who have experience have been in college and they haven't been probably riding as regularly as they would be in their day-to-day -day life. And um, the most, the scariest and craziest thing I've ever had to do in my entire life was learning how to shoe a horse. I mean, it is you've got this giant animal that has so much power and strength and you are pretty much clueless as to what to do. And for me, I think the first time that I put shoes on a horse, first of all, I think the girls in 96, I had an awesome crew, Tara and Anna and Christy and um, Eva. And we just had such an amazing crew of women. Um, and we really leaned on each other a lot. And then there were, there were definitely, um, some, some Wranglers, just like in life, there's people who are better mentors than others. And there were, there were always people who are willing to help you. And I think to me, that is one of the kind of the, the, um, the big things of the culture in, in the horse department is that you work hard and, and your job is hard and it's scary at times, but you learn from your mistakes. And as long as you learn from your mistakes, people see that you're working hard. And if you're putting in the effort, you can earn their respect. And then they're all about helping you. They care so much about the livestock. Um, and so they care about your safety, of course, too, but they want to make sure that you're doing it right also because, um, you know, you, you, they don't want to see an animal be harmed because you don't know what you're doing. Um, the mentors that I had in the horse department, uh, Joe Leak was um, awesome. He was, was a person who would always take the time to show me and especially in shoeing, he spent so much time helping me. Um, that year we had a, um, the horses at Philmont aren't necessarily the most gentle beings in the world. Um, they're, they're 
ranging for nine months out of the year. So that three months were pretty much interrupting their vacation. Um, so they're not necessarily excited to see you, some of them. And um, <clears throat> he had gotten kicked in the in the quad really badly, like couldn't bend his leg for a while. He had the biggest, ugliest bruise. And so he couldn't squat underneath a horse to shoe. So he kind of became like our personal person <laughs> that would help us. And some, some at one point, my job was to just hold the hoof and stand underneath and be his knees so that he could do all of the technical work. <laughs> like, And I learned from that. I learned so much from him. I remember yeah. a day I was holding a hoof and this horse was really pulling. He's like, don't let it go. Don't let it go. I'm almost done. And what you do when you're shooting horses is you, um, you use the back of your hammer and you, you take off the, the, you know, the, the sharp edge, but, but before you, um, before you close them down and clamp them down, they're, they're ragged, sharp edges and this horse pulled his foot while all those edges were out and flew through both of my hands and just <laughs> my hands were like gushing blood because I don't think I have any fingertips that will probably connect as a full swirl if I was going to have a fingerprint test right now because the, and it was bleeding and so the f horse's foot's all covered in blood and I remember Ben Vargas walking by and saying did you quick that horse I said no no sir that's my blood <laughs> I remember him stopping and looking at me and saying you might want to go in and take care of that. Um, and, and for me, the worst part was right after that, you have to go take a shower with soap and all of that soap and all of those cuts. It was terrible. But but um, I, I just I learned a lot from the people around me and and the people who did have experience were willing to share that experience with you. Um, as long as you were willing to put the effort in, they were willing to share their knowledge. There's a, obviously a lot of respect in in the ranch department just because of the type of work that you're all doing. And like you said, it's it's really a beautiful thing to hear about the devotion and the character of the type of people that that uh, lead and work in the in the ranch department. It's kind of a really big small department. I mean, we had thirty five people when I was there, so it's a big team, but not not like the Rangers where there's hundreds of people, and not as small as like a backcountry staff where there may be anywhere from four to you know twelve. Um, and I think that that was part of it, right? We and I think the beauty of us coming early is you're there really before, you know, you've got your early cons people and some of the people who come out to do tents and different things, but it's pretty quiet. It's it. I love the campers and I love the program, but that time at the ranch before everyone gets there is the greatest gift. It's the most peaceful time. Um, we joke all the time. I have some fantastic pictures of, uh, there's about five of us in 96 that, went, uh, it was the weekend before all the camp directors were going to arrive and we all went and climbed the tooth. And the joke was we got to get our hiking in before the other people get there because, you know, you're not supposed to be seen hiking once you're a wrangler, which is is a joke. But, um, you know, we, we went and climbed the tooth and we had all these funds. And a lot of the guys would joke that they were hiking, but really they were just hunting for sheds. It was it was a time where we kind of got to bond as a group because everyone was going through that hard time together. Um, and so I think that like everything, when you have things that are hard that you have to go through with a group, you just that bond is tighter um, than maybe just a casual connection that you might have um, with a team that's just a, a regular um, training exercise. So 1996, you're a Wrangler, you're going through the beginning of the summer and learning all these skills and building this family. And then of course, you know, the backcountry scatters and crews arrive. Did they still rotate Wranglers back then? Did you get to work at all three camps that summer and base camp, I, I guess? Was, 
I, yeah. so I base camp, I never worked at base camp. Um, I never took it personally at base camp. You, you have to chuck a lot of hay. Um, I didn't have probably as much upper body strength as it would have taken to be a really good wrangler at base camp. Um, so never offended me. Plus, I mean, base camp's cool and working with Ben would be a privilege and working with Rod. I mean, like that's the bonus of working in base camp is you get to work with the leadership very closely, but I was all about being in the backcountry. So um, that first year I was super lucky. I got to do a rotation at Ponyel, Clarks and Bobien. It was so amazing to go back to Bobien as a Wrangler. And that was my only job. I didn't have to like, after I did that stuff, I didn't have to go like brand stuff or teach right. or do campfire right. unless I wanted to. Yeah. Um, and then I also, I got to do both North and South cab that year. So I, I had the golden ticket. I got to do everything, um, that year, which was amazing. Would you say Bobian's your favorite camp just for fun? Favorite horse camp? Absolutely. If I could, if I could go back to, to Belmont, um, and spend a day, I would, I would go straight to Bonita Canyon. That is, um, super cheesy and probably shouldn't admit this on, on a recording, but Every single time we came over Fowler Pass when we were on our way to fish camp on Cavalcade, I would I would get so excited and I would tell the campers like, all right, this is like I always felt like it was like that moment in Willy Wonka when he's, you know, pushing open the big door to the candy factory. And in my head, I would be thinking of that song, Pure Imagination, in my head because it was just I, I wanted people to see this amazing, gorgeous, beautiful vista that was just amazing. And so, yeah, Benita Canyon, by far favorite place on Belmont. I'm loving your story because like you accidentally arrived at Philmont, you accidentally kind of fell into this love for horsemanship and here you are a wrangler and then in 1997 you become South Cav horseman and and so in that in that way you became the fourth female horseman on South Cav in 1997, correct? Absolutely. Yep. I think uh, I think a couple, I don't know if the other women before me did North or South, um, but I do know uh, in talking with Jeremy Spivey that that it was for sure the fourth um, cavalcade horseman. All the women there had been cavalcade horsemen. We didn't have our first camp horseman until 99 when Tara Alger Hardy um, became the horseman at Clark's Fork. Um, but yeah, it was, and, and I think there was uh, one of the questions you asked me was, I think was, did you have ever have a, a leader who encouraged you to t- apply for a leadership position? I, I don't think it, again, I, I am so grateful that other people saw things in me that maybe I didn't have the confidence to see in myself. I think that uh, when Ben talked to me about being a cavalcade horseman, I felt like it was like the biggest compliment in my life. Like that he had that much confidence in me that he could see what I couldn't see myself. Um, he made you want to be great so you could ensure that he'd have the respect for you that you had for him. Like he just, I have oftentimes talked about Ben and leadership things about you don't have to be the loudest person in the room to be a really effective leader. Uh, You've probably heard this from other people you've talked to in the horse department, but with Ben, it was almost like the softer he talked, the, the harder people listened because they knew what he said was important. Um, he, he cared so much about us as a staff. Like he and Marilyn were basically like your, your um, away from home parents. Um, and they knew everything too, just like parents. Like there was nothing going out of the ranch that Ben didn't know about. I'm, I'm convinced of that, that um, he may have never let you know that he knew what was going on, but he knew what was going on everywhere in his, de- in his department. Um, and, and it was for me, 
when I got that letter for South Cavalcade, I was, I was really, really intimidated. Uh, I mean, like I was, I was nervous, but I was really, really, I felt honored. I felt complimented that, that he thought enough of me. And, and honestly, I have to say it had to have been a lot about what he had saw in me as a leader and, and with leadership skills, because I was still someone who was continuing to come into my own and as far as horse skills went. Um, and so that also meant, meant a lot to me. Um, because you do have a wrangler that's with you, but you need to be able to be the person who can make the call and be in charge of the, really, you have to be in charge of the advisors because those are the people who are usually a little bit more challenging than the crew. Um, and, and so for me, I, w- I was super excited that it was South Country too, because as I mentioned to you before, I just love, love, love South Country. So 1997, you're South Country horseman, again, making you the fourth female horseman ever. Do you remember, um, backing up, do you remember in 1996 as a Wrangler, um, when you got to go on Cav, do you remember loving it and thinking, oh, this would be a great to do this all summer? Uh, I did love Cavalcade just because I think one of the things I loved being Cav horseman was you really had a chance because you stayed in one region of the ranch. So your South country or your North country. And I think probably uh, the horsemen in, in North country would agree with me. You build a bond with those staff camps because you see them every week. We have to stay in a camp that has corrals. So you don't do any trail camps because you need to have supplies there and a place to keep your livestock safe at night um, and corralled. Um, I'll tell you a story later about when that doesn't work out. But um, I, so I think that was one of the things I loved is that you built relationships with, you know, I, there was a, a in 90, ahead of a 90, maybe it was 96 or 97. I can't remember which year um, they could probably tell you, but Chris Swain was the director at Harlan and Christine Matthews was there because she's Matthew speed. Um, th- they were just such a great crew. And then as they moved camps, a lot of people would stay in their region as well. And so you'd run into them in a different role down the road and built a lot of friendships um, and they were just good to us. They'd feed us. They would, um, you know, give us, we, a lot of times would, um, depending on where we were at, like, you know, at a Brayu, we would sleep in the hay feeders. I never, I never, I don't think I ever slept in a tent at Philmont other than like the eight foot wall, uh, the six foot wall tents or whatever we had in base camp. Even when I backpacked, we would meadow crash or we would porch crash, or I don't, I can't recall a time ever sleeping in a camper tent at Philmont ever, <laughs> I, which is weird. No, that's awesome. I, I'm thinking like, okay, Caitlin, what about you? Have you, the only time I've slept in a, in a tent is when I worked fall, when I worked autumn and winter, cause I was taking out crews okay. and we were camping, but otherwise, yeah, I'd visit camps and we actually slept in the hay feeders at Bobian once or twice when I was on PC there just for fun. And yeah, uh, meadow crashing. Absolutely. So yeah, I love it. So you were building bonds with all the different uh, backcountry camps in those regions, which you really liked on South Cav. I really did. And so once I did Cav once, even if I had given the option to be a horseman at a camp the next year, and even if I had known that was the first female camp, you know, horseman, even if I had known all of that, I still would have gone back to Cavalcade. Uh, I loved the seeing different things every day. I love, I mean, you, you had some long days. Like I was looking at, so ironically, when you sent me the invite for this, I literally read it in the parking lot of the Amtrak station where I was picking up my youngest from the train getting back from Philmont. Um, So I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Um, And then ironically this morning I got up and I thought I'm doing the podcast today. And my oldest was taking my youngest to Six Flags today. And she walks in. I said, are you wearing my staff shorts? Philmont staff shorts? And she's like, oh yeah, they're super comfortable and they have way better pockets than mine. I'm like, okay. And so it was, it was kind of funny that, or ironic that they, 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 uh, 
came together that way. But but yeah, yeah. I I um I I loved the moving around on Cavalcade. I liked that we got to go a different place every every day. Um, some of the trails were really long. When we were looking through the guidebook with with my youngest, who was going out on trek with with uh, their crew, um, I I saw and realized that you know it was eighteen point nine miles or whatever from Bobian to Clark's Fork, and I was like, we did that every week. Like we almost always had that was a long day. Um, you would meet your crew at like five in the morning, and you wouldn't get in. You'd stop and do program at. Cypher's mine and then go on to Clark's Fork. It was a really long day on the trail, but, but awesome because we kind of got to do program at some of those camps too, that I hadn't been to deeper into the um, central country. Um, You didn't necessarily always do program, but you know, I probably, I don't think I'd ever been on a mine tour until I was a cavalcade horseman. So you were cavalcade horseman two years in a row, 1997 and 1998. And I, I am kind of like in my head now I'm, I'm thinking, that is a pretty serious leadership role. I mean, you are, you've got all these horses, you've got all these people, you're out there, you know, you do have your other Wrangler helping, of course, but yeah, were there moments where, you know, you were met with some big challenges or any insights there just from leadership on the trail horseback? Uh, There were, and um, my very first cavalcade that I had as a horseman, I don't know what happened, but we were at a Brayu. Um, we were supposed to go, when you go from Abreu, you go the next day to fish camp, but you don't go the traditional way to fish camp. You go over Stonewall into Crater Lake. You do program there. Then you go over to Fowler. And then what's the pass between Benita Canyon and like after Benita Canyon and into fish? What's that pass? Anyway, can, you do three passes yeah. that day. Um, and so it's a, it's a long day. You need to get on the road in the morning so you can make sure your crew can do program and still get into fish camp at a decent time. Well, we woke up. And our horses who were in with the burrows were not in the pen. They were not in the corral. Um, something had happened and the gate hadn't been closed all the way. And the horses and the burrows got out. Luckily, most of our cavalcade horsemen, they're, they're very, or cavalcade horses, um, you know, they don't like to be apart from each other. So most of them were together. We were missing, Trigger was with me though. And it was kind of cool because the the staff from, from, from Bobian, Trigger, Travis Powell, myself, all were um, program staff in 1995, and all three of us were Wranglers in 1996. So it was really cool that the three of us stayed together um, and and got to move on to that next section. Trigger was my Wrangler that year, and his horse was missing. We couldn't go without his horse, and you can't really you can't really borrow a burrow. <laughs> That's not really going to fly. Uh, so we had a call on a base, and Rod came up, and on his way up to bring him another horse, he actually ran into his horse room in the trailer and brought him up to us. But by that point, we were so far behind schedule that, um, <laughs> you know, you can cut off a lot of time if you just go through the notch. I think we got lost twice trying to get to the notch because you don't usually use a lot of times in cavalcade, you use closed trails so that you don't come across campers as often because they're big and there's just, there's danger involved, right. In passing a crew. And so we get up to the notch and have you walked, have you hiked that way from Abreu to fish through the notch? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, like it's not a huge opening. And, and as you come around that corner, it, it's pretty intimidating. Like it's straight down the side. And so I went over and looked and I had all of my crew, all of my cavalcade crew dismount. And we, we all went and looked where we were going to be going. And I said, if you're not comfortable riding your horse through, we can, you know, either guide you through or we can, or you can walk through and then remount. Um, which honestly, logistically, I don't know how we would have done that because it's pretty narrow. And so passing them after we did that would have been 
a chore. Um, but every one of them was like, no, we're going to ride. We're going to ride through the notch. I'm like, okay. So trigger was leading. He was at the front and I was in the, in the very back. Um, and you could hear these kids as they went around the corner, either suck in their breath or you go, Oh my gosh. Because I mean, like you're, and you're so much taller up on a horse and you're just coming around this corner and you can't see the ground. And, uh, it was, it's such a narrow trail and all the way on both sides go straight up or straight down. At some point, one of our pack horses must have hit a tree limb or something that was hanging over and a sleeping bag broke free and started going down the side of the mountain. So we're stuck in the middle of this trail. We stop because one of the guys are like, hey, our sleeping bags are going down the mountain. So we stop. I can't go up there because we have this one horse. His name was Brennan. And he always had to ride in the back because if any horse got near him, he'd just flatten his ears and kick the horse behind him. So he always had to be the last one. We always used to joke, you always had to pick a cool kid to ride Brennan because you knew you were going to have to ride by him every other day for your entire cavalcade. Um, so when we would assign the horses to the kids, we'd often try and assign kids by their um, the horse's personality, the kid's personality, and their riding ability. Um, so always pick a cool kid that you want to talk to who's going to ride Brennan. Um, so I couldn't move. I was stuck in the back of the line, but I couldn't help because I couldn't pass Brennan because he would have kicked me. So poor Trigger is at the front and he's climbing down the side of this incline to try and get these sleeping bags. I mean, it was just, I don't think we got into fish camp until almost seven o'clock, but I guarantee you we provided the highest adventure that day to that crew. And they probably are still telling the story just like I am. Um, because it was a really memorable day. Um, it was a good bonding day for the crew. It was our first day on the trail. Uh, or I guess it was our second day because our first day we would, would have gone to Abreu. But yeah, it was, uh, it was an intense day. So sort of switching gears here just for fun a little bit. So I'm airing this the day after the 4th of July. So obviously the the Maverick Rodeo in Cimarron is a really big tradition for, of course, you know, the Cimarron area, but also the Philmont staff and the ranch department. Did you participate in the rodeo as a, as a wrangler and horseman? I never participated in any of the events. Um, it, it, honestly, really, I don't know if, if many women have competed in the rodeo. That'd be a great question to find out. Um, probably in preparation for this event, I should have asked around. I don't know if generations after us did, but mostly in ours, it was mostly the guys that participated. Um, a lot of the activities were pretty, um, like, you know, a lot of people would participate in the wild horse or, uh, you know, Jake Anderson was a bronc rider. Um, Travis Powell was a bull rider. Coming to Philmont was the first time I ever learned that you could have a scholarship for bull riding because Travis Powell was on bull riding scholarship at his school um, in Michigan. Yeah, we didn't have that. Um so we, the, the coolest part about the rodeo was you knew people competing and you were cheering your people on and watching them either win or uh, get really frustrated losing. Um, Stacey Green ran. Uh, Gria was this horse that we had that was really fast. I think Jake raced Gria one year too in the um, wild horse or in the, uh, in the actual race. Um, but I never participated as a, as anything but a spectator. Was there always a, a dance afterwards? Yes, the dances. A lot of times um, back in those days, we used to have dances um, out at Cimarron Cita. So that was before it was Filma owned. It was still owned by, I, I can't remember who owned it before us, so if it was Girl Scouts or if it was some sort of a scouting or 4-H kind of group. Um, and they owned it and uh, they would have, it was a really, really neat place to have dances. They would, um, it was like an old school camp dining hall 
and they would have like the, you know, the wooden slats that would open up for the screens to, so that you could get air through there and rod and, and would play there. And um, it, was, it was super fun. The dances were my favorite. I didn't know how to two-step before I came to Philmont. Um, definitely learned that. Jeremy Spivey is a, likes to do a little swing dancing. So he taught me some swing while we were there. Um, so it was always fun because all of the guys that we worked with were all dancers. Like they, they might not all be, you know, swing dancers like Spivey, but they all two-step. Um, and so you always had someone to dance with at the dances. I didn't know that they did the dances at Cimarron Sita. That's awesome. I'm kind of jealous. Cause I feel like that, yeah, it would be a really magical spot for a, for a rodeo dance or post rodeo dance. It really was. And we definitely did events at cold beer as well. Like when they had that, when, once they had the outdoor patio created, um, that was definitely another great place to go out and do dances. And and we do, we did a lot of dances out there where they, once, um, you know, Roger had done a lot of work out there to, to put together a really nice venue and, and get people out there for um, events like dances. So anytime, I mean, we all, we all worked and respected Rod, but everyone there also was probably, f- they probably wouldn't like it if I say fangirling because they're not, they're all men, but uh, there's a little bit of, of, of fanning along, um, you know, when he played and, to this day, like I always love that he he performed at my wedding. He was um we we hired his band to play at our wedding, and he um that's something that I'm I'm excited to always have as part of my memories of that day. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. So you did marry your Phil Fling, we'll say. Uh, what's the what's the story there? So funny story. I met David, who most people on here would probably know as Repo. Um, we joke it was a it was a transition for me to get to David. Um, because I met him as repo. I knew him as repo for probably the first three years and then, you know, maybe two years. And then he was Dave. Then I met his mother and he was David from there on out. Um, but, uh, still to this day, sometimes I'll say to people like, Oh no, I married David Rebovich who I'm like repo. They're like, Oh, Oh. Um, so like, I think you've talked about it before camp nicknames that he was definitely repo the whole time that I knew him there. Um, he was working at Rayado in 1994, and I, as one of the things that we do for family program is a lot of times we take the kids down for the Rayado tour. Um, and so he was working the forge and uh, there's something about a guy in interps. I mean, it's just an added, added thing. I had a huge crush on him, um, but I was 19 and he was 21. And so I couldn't go to the bar. So we never really hung out. We talked all summer. We became friends that year. Um, we had this silly game we'd play that I would come down. And when he was doing the forge talk, I would give him like four or five movie quotes and he would have to work them into his forge talk to win the game. Um, so he would work in different random things that probably people who were there, like occasionally, you know, you'd get that outside group that would join a tour. Um, I'm sure if there were the kids, they went right over their heads, but the, the people in the tour were probably like, what did he just say? Barry, does Barry Manilow know you raid his wardrobe? Um, like we would just put in random stuff from from 80s movies into this tour and he would he would always find a way to fit them in. Um, so we came friends that summer. Um, continued that in 95, he was at Sealy and uh, I didn't see him as much, but I'd run into him, of course, at the kit or in you know, different places. The kit was the place to go back in the day. And then uh, in 96, he was at, oh no, no, I'm sorry. 95, he was at Miranda. 96, he was at Sealy. Um, all those times we were just casual summer friends. Like I always joke with people that had we dated any summer before 98, which is when we actually started to date, we would not be married. If we just weren't at the right places in our lives, we'd lived far away from each other. Um, I just don't know if, if we'd have gone the distance if if we had 
dated in the summer earlier than that. Um, in 98, though, he came out on early crew, on the work crew, special assignment, I think they called it, when you just showed up early. Him and Reggie Jane were uh, driving around the backcountry, and I credit Reggie partially for my relationship with David because he and I were good friends. He'd been an assistant camp director at Clark's and then he'd been a camp director while I was a Wrangler. Um, so I was like, Hey Reg, I really, I really like repo. What can you do to help connect us? Um, and so he started putting a bug in his ear and um, the day that sealed, sealed the deal that where we actually started like really hanging out more. Um, we were topping off in 98, we had, uh, I had what, what we like to call in Philmont a unscheduled dismount, which is means you didn't mean to leave your horse, but you did. Um, I had a horse who, I don't know that he was bucking. I think he just tripped. Um, he did a complete somersault and I somehow um, stepped out of it. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering wrong. That, that is not the one that was, that, that did happen, but um, I got headbutted by a horse in the face and it put my tooth through my chin. Um, like literally I thought I broke my tooth cause I couldn't feel it, but it was because it was still sticking through my chin. Um, okay. Tooth is sticking through your chin, like down here. Yeah. Like, right. Like I have a scar right here. That's the shape of my tooth. Um, I, so I was, we were running brand new horses around barrels. Um, and I was trying to get this horse to come around a barrel and he wouldn't. And so I leaned down to like, um, pull his head around manually because he wouldn't turn and he threw his head back and just hit me square in the face. And, um, it was still early in the season, like uh, and the camp directors hadn't arrived yet. Um, and I, I remember coming back up and, and looking at it and saying I had to go into the bathroom because when Rod Taylor's like, that's gross to go take care of that. <laughs> He's had way more injuries than me, but um, I went in and I literally had to pull my lip up and pull it off of my tooth. And then, of course, it was bleeding. And so I went back out and I remember thinking, do I need to get stitches? And he's like, I don't know. I, I, I. And he's like basically referencing like I, I don't really care about scars on my face but you might as a chick so he didn't use that word that was my word um he's like as a woman you might you might want to have stitches so Anna LaPointe uh drove me to Raton which was an experience in itself like I learned that's the day I learned that non-serious issues you uh, we all know non-serious issues go to Raton and serious issues go to Taos um, and that day I learned why, because I went in there, I literally had a thing on the front of my face and the doctor said, do you need stitches? And I said, I don't know. Do I need stitches? And he took out a flashlight and he shined it in the thing. He's like, it went all the way through. And I wanted to say like, yeah, that's why it's bleeding on the outside of my face. Like, so, um, I, I decided at that point that no, we probably don't need stitches. I'm good. Um, so they gave me a bandaid, which of course you can't wear if you're cool and a wrangler. Um, so that night we went out to cold beer and we were there to watch the series finale of Seinfeld. Um, we all went out and got pizzas to watch the very last Seinfeld episode. And I sat next to David um, while we were out there. And um, when I would drink carbonated, we were drinking refreshing carbonated beverages. Um, and every time I would take a drink, the bubbles <laughs> would bubble through my chin. And so I would have to dab the, the chin with a napkin <laughs> because bubbles were coming out of my chin from this stupid tooth that went through it. And um, I always say that's how I snagged him. He was, thought it was pretty cool that I was out drinking beers with the guys after putting my tooth in my chin. And we started hanging out after that. And the rest, as they say, is history. And it just turned out that that year he was a uh, cabin restoration foreman at Abreu. So he was on the crew that um, built the house uh, out at Abreu or built the new structure. Um, and he'd been working in the off season with uh, Doug and he did all sorts of research and actually did all the design aspects on creating the, the structure and what it was going to be. And then 
sent a whole proposal to get it approved. And, um, but it was good luck for me because Cavalcade went through Abreu almost every week. So I got to, you know, go and hang out with their staff every week and get to know the people on his team. And you guys ended up getting married out at Filma in the the Holy Child Chapel across from Rayado. And then you had the reception at the St. James and and that's where, where Rod played for you or did he play at the wedding ceremony? Nope. He played at, um, he played at um, the kit. I'm sorry, at uh, the James, we had our, our reception at the James and uh, special guest star Eric Voss came out and played for us. We had become friends um, a couple years before. And uh, so he, he came out and, and also took some turns up with the band. So that was, it was so much fun. Um, I, I will never forget the uh, bartender coming over to me about midway through the night. And he said, uh, ma'am, I'm going to, I'm going to turn off your open tab because I think a third of the people in this room are no longer part of your wedding party. <laughs> I don't want you to end up having to finance a drinking night for everyone at Philmont. I was like, thanks. Thanks so much. But it was such a fun night. We, uh, as you mentioned, we got married. It was cool because we'd met, you know, we'd met across the street at Rayado. And so to get married um, right across the street from where we met was really, really cool. Father Don Hummel married us. Um, he'd been a chaplain there uh, in the years I was there. He was no longer out there regularly. We got married in 2001. Um, so he was no longer out there as a regular assignment, but he happened to be out there for a two week stint. Like he would come out and do like two week visiting sessions. And so he, it just, all the stars aligned and uh, he was going to be out there that year. So father Don is the one who famously coined for me during our wedding. He said, this is our Phil, our Phil fling that became a Phil thing and is now resulting in a Phil ring. So yeah, he, it was, it was a really, really, really fun night. Um, we actually got married with immediate family and Philmont peep family. And then we went back to our respective States and had parties with our actual families. So we, um, I am the one person who can tell you I wore my wedding dress more than once because that was the agreement I made with my mom. that We would keep things really small because the chapel was so little. And that was kind of before you did destination weddings. And so, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, I have a really large family, um, and it was just, wasn't going to be possible for everyone to get out there. So we kind of kept it a Philmont thing out there. I was so excited because I finally got to show my family, um, Philmont. They, they never, they weren't, they weren't scouters. I'm the, there's three, there's four kids in our family. I'm the second of three girls and then a boy and my brother wasn't in scouting. So my parents just really had no idea what, what I was talking about when I explained Philmont to them. So that was probably one of the best parts about the whole thing was that my parents and my godfather and my busha, who was, you know, in her eighties at the time, um, or, or almost 80 had never been West of the Mississippi river. And so she came out, we lived in Denver at the time and we took her out to Rocky Mountain national park and then down to Philmont. And it was, it was really, really, really neat to, to just share that space and that special place with my family. That was a smart way to do it. I, I told you in an email that at one point we planned our wedding out at Philmont as well, but couldn't make it happen because of, you know, family logistics and traveling, getting everybody in one place. But I'm glad you got to show your blood family, uh, introduce them to your Philmont family. That's a beautiful story. What is the end of summer like for Cavalcade or for Wranglers? I think uh, end of summer. Um, so I, I know you've probably heard this story before. So, but um, when we talk about the the things that you love most about being in your department or what what your traditions are, right? The horse drives are a huge part of the Philmont Ranch Department's um, experience because it's it's like nothing else. I mean, where else are you going to go? Where it, it's kind of like the time where you get to feel like my air quotes real cowboys for those of us who are really truly 
um, not living in that world. Um, it just felt like you were doing real work. And so it, it started at the beginning of the summer for us where the horsemen come out um, early. We usually came out Mother's Day weekend for the horsemen. And you were there a week before the rest of the Wranglers got there. And the group of us would go up. We'd find some Wrangling horses and put shoes on them. And then they would, they would trailer us up to usually it was around Poneal is where they'd have the horses at that point in the year. And um, the seven or eight of us would bring down the whole big herd through summer on. Um, it was amazing. And it's just the most exhilarating. It's a long drive, but it's fast because the horses are um, kind of geared and ready to go. It's not their first rodeo, so to speak. And um, so you just have to keep them all going in the right direction. And so we'd bring them on through town. We'd get them all done. And then scatter and gather for us in the horse department was all about putting the horses where they needed to be for their next thing. So once from base camp at the beginning of the summer, you would push them all back out. But at the end of the summer, you would be pushing them to wherever they were going to start their fall rotation. Um, and whether that be a lot of times what they do is they would um, end up around Bonita. Um, so Bobian maybe didn't have a, a hard drive, but your camp was responsible for the drive. And then the cavalcade horsemen filled in all of the gaps um, to help with the crews that needed to. So North Cav helped the North camps, South Cav helped the central and South camps. And they'd push a lot of times, like if, if we were going to Benita, the uh, the team from Poneal would bring their horses down to base. They'd give them like a day rest and then we'd push them back up over to where the rest of the horses were. And before you could do that, you had to remove all their shoes because they didn't go out into the, so that was the end of the year you were, that's a little bit easier process, but you have to take off all of their shoes before you release them back into the winter pastures or the fall pastures really at that point. Um, so at the camps, when you were getting ready for your drive, that crew would get all of their horses um, shoes removed and make sure that they were all good to go and healthy and could go out to the pastures. Um, and then one of my favorite things, and I, I don't have a picture of myself doing it, but I think I took pictures of other people doing it. Um, whoever was driving them up there, when you'd get to your final destination, you'd get off, you'd unsaddle your horse, you'd pull your horse's shoes off right there in the field and then let them go in with their, with the rest of their group. So you were like, it was kind of like the, the, the punctuation at the end of the sentence, like I just had to let my horse go and he's gone. And for, for people like me who, who didn't have a ranch or didn't have a horse, it was, it's like giving away your dog at the end of your, at the end of your summer. I mean, you had two horses. Each of us got two horses. Um, horses were picked by seniority. So they'd go down the line and the people with the highest seniority got to pick first. Um, it's kind of like picking a, a, a basketball team, um, but with horses. And so you had horses you wanted. Um, and, uh, so for me, my, my two horses, my last year, Stray Cat and Pinta, um, both, both, uh, paint horses, one a Mustang paint and, and, and one a quarter paint. And, uh, you take them off and, and send them off and hope that they have a good winter and that nothing crazy happens to them and that you'll see them again the next summer. But 98, I knew I wasn't coming back. I, I graduated. I am one of those people. I graduated in December of 97, um, called up all my friends to figure out who I could stay with. Um, so I could go back to Philmont one year, moved in with Tara Elger, uh, who's now Tara Elger Hardy out in, in Gunnison. Um, she was going to Western State College, got a job at the ski resort um, and spent the winter cleaning condos and, and lift passes um, so that I could go back one more summer. And I knew that at the end of that summer, I was moving to Denver, how to get a big kid job. Um, and this was going to be my last summer. So it was it was kind of an emotional thing, like knowing that like this part of your personal development and of your that that was that's been your heart for all of these summers that that it's going to come to an end and you've got to move on and be a grown-up it was it was a little depressing yeah I can relate I was going to ask I was going to say how'd you know 
for me, it was knowing that my student loans were going to be coming due. Um, I only had two more months until my student loan payments. So you get like a six month default. And I was I was ending the end of my default. But I always say when when I talk to people about it, you know, I'm sure just like everyone else, um, Phil wants so hard to describe. I I will always be grateful to Dirty Larry for making the film on documentary because it was the closest I've been able to share with people and have them understand why FOMA is what it is to us. And I still think that if you're not there, you don't fully get it. But for me, watching that documentary, I, I, I tell him a couple of times when I've talked to him, I'm like, I think I cried four times in that documentary. Like you just, it, it, it evokes the right emotions and, and you feel um, the, the excitement and the awe and the wonder. And I think like so many other people, I feel like, when you grow up in a small town, I grew up in a town of about 10,000. Um, people have known you since you were you know, born um, and they know who you're supposed to be and you fit into that mold of that person at home. And so for me, Philmont was so freeing because nobody knew who I was and, and I could be whatever or whoever I wanted to be. And in it, I think it gave me the, the time and the space and the, the um, took away all of the distractions that were unimportant and gave you that chance to really think about who you wanted to be and what kind of person you wanted to go into life and all of the hard things that you had to do. It helped you understand that it might not be a direct translation. Am I ever going to have to shoe a horse again? God, I hope not. Um, I would outsource that in a heartbeat. Um, Travis Powell, you would be my first call. Um, I, it gave me um, context to understand that, that there were going to be really hard things in my life that I was going to come across but that there was nothing I couldn't do if I wanted to do it. I could find a way to get it done. I could find a person who would help me learn what I needed to learn. Um, and with, with some grit and some hard work that you could get where you needed to go. And, and I think all the areas of Philmont help you do that. But the horse department for me, because I was so fish out of water when I first started and I went from zero to, um, to a leadership role, I think for me personally, it was a really, really impactful thing. I, I think about all the time that, there's those game changer moments or those game changer people in your life. And I always think Stacy green probably has no idea that he is one of those people for me because had he not, first of all, given me the opportunity as a PC. And then second of all, helped me to really understand that that was a possibility. I, I don't, I don't think I would have been a Wrangler. I don't know that it would have ever occurred to me that that was a possibility. Just kind of back to what you said at the beginning of that with the Philmont documentary, Dirty Larry, Larry McLaughlin really did. He did that right. It's one of my favorite things to watch. I watch it occasionally. I just like put it on in the background sometimes even. And like you said, it really helps um, explain it to people who who haven't been there. And uh, side note, I don't know. I know that the trading post doesn't carry it anymore and I don't think you can find it anywhere online, but if anyone's listening or the powers that may be, it needs to be available again to folks. So uh, we should get that back on the shelves. Amen. I would <laughs> buy it forever. I wanted to buy a copy for my troop. My my youngest um, started in scouting when girl troops were inaugural, um, started in the troop then. Our troop uh, in, in Illinois is amazing. Um, it is, I think there's 142 kids between the two troops um, and they do it patrol method and they do all the things that you want to see scouting happen. Um, and I love it. They use each other to make great programs for both the um, male and female groups, parts of it, the boy and girl troops, they plan activities. 
um, in parallel. So they might have a shooting camp out and they all go to the shooting camp out, but the girls do their own grub patrols and their own camp outs and the boys do their own thing. And then they just come together for the activity. And um, I, I think that I wanted to share that documentary with them. Like I want to buy all of the people a copy. I can't find it. Whoever owns that missing out on a huge financial opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. We'll, we'll try to get it back out there for folks. I absolutely agree. And speaking of kind of, you know, today and what you're doing today, you did work um, as a exploring executive and a district executive for Denver Area Council from 2002 to 2005. Um, and today you're still involved in scouting. And you mentioned you recently picked up your youngest from their trek at Philmont. How was it? Did they have a good time? It was an amazing experience. Um I think there were some hard times. I think that the uh, it was shared with me that there were some tears, um, but it all turned out great. And you're kind of holding your breath because you want, they, they've been out there once before. We took our kids out for a PSA reunion um, in 2017, I think was the last time we were there. We'd done drive-thrus with them because we lived in Denver for a while. So we'd gone back to visit a couple of times um, and we did some drive-thrus, but they actually got to experience program in 2017. Um you know, David and I went and did all the fun PSA stuff and our kids did the family program. So they got to do some of the hikes and, and they liked it. And um, my youngest really liked it. I think it was the running around with all the kids in a safe space and like they could just be turned loose and just do their thing and, and really liked it. But going out on track, we were like kind of holding our breath, like, how's it going to be when they return? And so when we heard some of the first comments, like, I think I would want to start in base camp because then I could, they talked about how you get like these, three or four days off in a row. And I was like, yes, I'm really hoping my, my older daughter plays um, travel softball, competitive softball and, and is looking to pursue that in college. And so the odds that she would ever um, be able to do that um, are really limited, limited or, or slim. And I don't know if she really has the drive to do that, but my youngest I think could be the next generation staffer. So it was really exciting. I, you know, on Facebook, I, I don't do a ton of Facebook anymore, but um I try and get on every once in a while, really just to keep up with, with uh, college friends and Philmont people. And um, I saw a post with Reggie Jane and Doug Fashing's daughters together on staff. And I was like, that's so cool. And, and the Tonys have a, a daughter out there. Um, I, I just think it's neat to see my generation's kids having their kids, having their own experience and their own adventure. And one of the things someone asked, like, don't you wish you were there at Philmont with them? And I said, um, no. I really, I really don't. I really want them to have their own experience. I don't want them to be hampered by my mom keeps telling this story about when she was on staff. Um, you know, I, I wanted them to experience it through their own lens and through their own opportunities. And, and I'm glad that the struggles that they went through, they had to go through without me, even though obviously it'd be really cool to share the experience. I, I was excited that, that the opportunity they were having was, um, without without anyone else influencing that experience. Although we probably influenced it by raving about it in advance. Um, I'm so glad that they got that experience with their with their crew on their own. Yeah, I get that. My own kiddos are still pretty young, but I often think, you know, obviously I would love if they would want to go to Philmont, but of course they're gonna be their own person. Um, but when they when and if they do ever go, yeah, I'll be excited for them. Okay, two questions, kind of. What are you excited for for the future of scouting and or Philmont? And then if there's anyone you'd like to nominate on the show, I'd love to know who. Absolutely. I, one of the things that I think I'm most excited about scouting is 
I love that we're still moving forward with patrol method and the leadership, which is what makes scouting great, right? Giving youth a chance to learn and lead and um, learn how to be self-reliant and all of the skills that, that are available to them in scouting. Um, I was listening, I think it was Ryan, I think it was Radish who was talking about inclusivity. Um, and I am so appreciative that scouting has become more inclusive. Our troop is very open and um, accessible to kids uh, in all walks of life. Um, we have lots of different faiths represented, even though our chartered organization is a Catholic church. We have all spectrums of religion in our troop. We have kids who are in the LGBTQ community um, and our, our leadership and our scoutmasters just do an amazing job of making sure those kids feel welcome. Um, and I, and I so appreciate that. I think that's, I think that's something that's so important in the world right now is that everyone is given that equity. I work in college recruiting and we, we talk a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion in our roles. And, um, and I think that's true in scouting too. I think that kids learn from other kids and being able to see themselves represented is important. And I, and I like that they have, uh, you know, so much more acceptance and, you know, they've talked a little bit in the past about gender roles and, and women at Philmont. Um, you know, I had one instance at my, in my scouting that really stood out. Um, we were going to go on a cavalcade and uh, I had an advisor said, if she's going, I'm not. And Ben Vargas said, great. There, there are tents down the road. Feel free to grab one because she's going. And I was like, it, it was just a great moment for me because you just knew that people had your back. And, you know, they, people talk about sometimes about the ranch department being the old boys network. I never felt that. I, I always felt you know, there were people who were definitely in traditional roles at times, but I never felt anything less than supported by by the men that I worked with. Um, and I never felt like that they didn't have my back. As long, it, it came down to it didn't matter. It didn't matter male or female. It was did you work hard and did you put in the effort? And if you did, then they had your back. If they didn't, it didn't matter if you're a female or male. You're making their job harder. Um, you're not pulling your weight. You're not doing your job. That was the issue. Not Not what your gender was or what your background was. Um, and so I, I like to see that that's also being conveyed in scouting. Um, and I'm excited that girl troops are a thing. We just celebrated our very first Eagle girl this week um, on, on Monday, actually. And there's a couple in line right behind her. So it's really exciting. Who would you like to nominate to be on the show? I can't believe, and I don't know if anyone's nominated him. I just haven't heard it. I can't believe Rock Rohrbacher hasn't been nominated about 12 times. He is legend. Um, I love Rock. Yeah. The other one I'd say is Father John Hummel. Um, I think that chaplains have such a unique role at the ranch. Um, and they they hear they get to they get to experience the highs, the high highs and the low lows. Um, there's so much celebration in it. And I think that uh Father Don, I think he would oftentimes invite us to choir practice at the St. James. That was the code back in the day, um, to go down and have a few refreshing beverages. But I think he would be really interesting to listen to as well. I do kind of like to close interviews with the 11th essential question. Is there something that you you have in mind? <laughs> Mine is so lame. But every year in Cavalcade, I uh, I had this awesome <laughs> travel pillow. That was this L.L. Bean pillow that rolled up. And it was like the greatest luxury ever to have a pillow on the trail. Um, so I, I literally would pack in my in my stuff and in my saddlebags. I had a travel pillow that I packed with me every year that I was on Cavalcade. So that was my 11th essential, I guess. There's nothing like lying down in bed after a long day and being able to have a fluffy, somewhat fluffy pillow. So I love that. Even though it squished down into a tiny thing, when you took it out, it was luxury. 
one of my favorite places to stop in South Cavalcade was Fish Camp because it was such a beautiful place. Also, as um, as Wranglers, you didn't have to work the next day because when you stayed over at a horse camp at Bobian, if you did your layover at Bobian, um, it was just common courtesy to get up and help them saddle and do their get their rides out for the morning. But if you're at Fish Camp, you had no responsibilities other than to get the horses fed that day. Um, and it didn't have to happen at six in the morning. So we would uh, get to sleep in a little bit. And Eric Lockler was camp director there one year, and he would always give us the courtesy of letting us use the bedroom while we were there. So we would have real beds um, and to get to sleep in fish camp um, on your trail ride was amazing. And we had a couple we had a couple of epic adventures that happened out of fish camp. Twice I tried to go to Clear Creek. The first time I tried to go on a days off ride we got intercepted by the Wranglers from Bobian or maybe the fish camp crew came down and said, Hey, Rod wants you to meet him at PJ. You guys need to go move cows. And so we were like, we were like really all saddled to go. We were like, oh. our day off suddenly became a work day. And we got up there and, and I remember us thinking like, okay, nobody mentions this, right? Cause technically speaking, you weren't allowed to just go ride on your own. Um, it was probably the rule that I can say about, that I can talk about breaking is that a lot of times, you know, we would go off and explore a little bit on our, on our layover day. Um, and so we met up with Rod at, at PJ and he said, foiled your plans, huh? And I was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what do you mean? Um, but the second time we were there, we made it. We, we did a, a full ride up to Clear Creek, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous place to go ride a horse. But obviously Kevin kids didn't go up there. Um, and we rode up there and had um, one of the coolest and most amazing um, rides back uh, ever. It was kind of our kamikaze run because we were late and it was super fast speed and uh, it was so much fun. So that one was there. And then, um, you know, shout out to a couple of our, our fellow people who we've lost um, from my generation. Um, sorry, just a second. Um, Sam Sorkin was an amazing person. It was sad to lose him. Um, and Jen Temple who was an amazing person who worked at PGC with me. Um, both of those people, Laurie Cochran, who was my CD at Bobian. Um, definitely three people who uh, the world lost way too early. So shout out to them just so that they're remembered in this oral history. Yeah, that's always important. Thank you. And thank you, Laurie. I really can't thank you enough for hopping on here and taking the time to dig through your memories and share an hour and a half here on the show with me today. Well, thank you so much. I mean, it's, it's truly never a burden to talk about Philmont. Um, and uh, it was fun. I've been uh, listening to your, well, I listened to your latest podcast last night and um, spent the lunch hour listening to a little Rod Taylor to kind of get me in, in the, in the frame of mind um, to, yeah. to, to talk all this stuff. So I really appreciate what you're doing. I think that oral history is so important. Um, I learned that this past weekend we were talking about with my family. I, I uh, captured a ton of information and I, I was joking with someone. I was using you as motivation. I said, I feel like we should create a family podcast to record all these stories while we have, you know, a hundred year old matriarch who's available to still, still in her right mind to tell us all these stories. Like we should be recording this every time we see her. So, so thank you for what you do um, and for the opportunity to talk with you today. Mm-hmm.